Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the writings that you give it. And think about the price that he paid, often being in prison, to ponder these things and to write because of his concern for these churches. And we would just ask that you would be with Tom and that your spirit would work in our hearts uh, so that we might understand and apply the things that you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Good to be back. My title uh, for this morning is The Only Commendation That Matters. Uh, this passage is, is one that is, some people see as a little confusing, maybe easy to overlook, but it's actually very, very important in the, in the whole flow and focus of this book. As with everything having to do with the word of the, uh, the, word of the cross and the way of the cross, what Paul says to us here is antithetical to the world's priorities and to the world's entire notion of personal well-being. The world tells us to assert ourselves, tells us to sell ourselves, to make sure that our skill and our talent and our accomplishments are acknowledged, that they are appreciated, that they are rewarded by other human beings. The world tells us to pursue uh, power and influence over others so that we will not somehow get left behind. But the way of the cross is nothing like that. For all of us who belong to Christ, what we find in this passage is, is liberating. It is empowering. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Paul begins verse 12 with the word for, and that means that he's pointing us back to what he just said in the preceding verses. In verses 10 and 11, speaking of just one of the many criticisms that was being leveled against Paul by his detractors in Corinth, he said, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. His speech is contemptible. And then he says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in words when absent, words by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. 
Paul's critics were accusing him of being two-faced. They were saying that his words were not nearly as impressive or forceful when he was present in Corinth as they were in, in these letters that he kept sending. And at the same time, they were quick to commend themselves as eloquent and persuasive and far more worthy of the Corinthians' attention than, than Paul. In short, they were trying to enhance their own position and influence by tearing down Paul, by diminishing his position. The, the kind of men who tend to be exalted over other men in the world are often charismatic in their presentation. They are forceful in their personalities. They don't hesitate to make a big selling point of their own worthiness to be heard and to be followed. But Paul will have no part in a standard of comparison that pits the merits or attributes of men against other men. Six times in just one verse, verse 12, Paul uses the word ourselves or themselves to draw attention to a very sharp contrast between that standard, the world standard for addressing the worth of a representative of Christ and the only standard that actually means anything. Don't miss, don't miss the sarcasm in Paul's response to his accusers in verse 12. He says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. Paul is not saying, when he says we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with these men, he's not saying we could never be as worthy of your attention as those men are. What he's saying is we will have no part in comparisons that make men the standard instead of Christ. At the end of verse 12, Paul says that those who do make such comparisons are without Understanding. They are devoid of understanding. That means that they are fools. Their whole paradigm for asserting the worthiness of Paul's ministry and of their own is foolishness. And the reason that it is foolishness is because it is man-centered rather than Christ-centered. A once prominent preacher who had a megachurch in Farmer's Branch before anyone used the word megachurch and had his name plastered on a grain silo in Carrollton, uh, some of you have already guessed, regularly told his congregation of thousands that he had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit and that they needed to be under his teaching. In other words, he was declaring himself to be indispensable to the church. I'd encourage you to read 1 John 2 where John says you, you don't have any need of teachers. You all have the anointing of the same Holy Spirit. The one who wrote the Word, you all have the anointing of the same Holy Spirit. Of course, this same preacher that I'm talking about also declared shamelessly that if, 
if people would send him a prayer request in the same envelope as a check addressed to his ministry, he would be the conduit through which God would bring them boundless health, wealth, and blessing. For several years, he was taking in more than $80 million a year in contributions through his church and television ministries. And then one night on ABC's Primetime Live, Dave Diane Sawyer showed the world a video of his workers in a warehouse pulling checks out of envelopes by the thousands while tossing all the prayer requests in a dumpster. It saddens me to say a couple of things. First of all, he's back. Uh, he's in Miami. He's got another ministry. He's got an increasingly large following. He's, he's aging out, but that, that saddens me because he hasn't changed his story. But what really, really saddens me is that there is no shortage today of men building their churches and their bank accounts on the same doubly damned quicksand of self-commendation and the promise of a slot machine God who always delivers. The craziest part of the whole thing is not the ridiculous claims of such preachers. The craziest part is that there are so very many people who readily embrace their ridiculous claims. P.T. Barnum was right. There's a sucker born every minute. But there are other far more subtle forms of man's exaltation of man within the professing church. Forms that I think many mainstream evangelicals seem not to even notice. What does it actually say to the church and to the world when one local congregation finds it necessary to transmit their preacher's sermons to five or ten satellite churches every Sunday? Has the Holy Spirit really gifted and equipped so few men to preach His Word effectively that you can't find one among 20 or 30,000 Christians? There's something seriously wrong with this picture. And it's all too common. All such nonsense would be put away from the church if we simply assessed the commendability of men based on the standard that God uses for such assessment. And I have to say, by the way, there, there, are quite, there is quite a number of men in this little flock of about 200 Christians who could do what I'm doing quite effectively. One thing that is reliably consistent among godly and faithful ambassadors of Christ is that the one and only person that they claim to be worthy of any man's affection and submission is Christ. Any man who asserts his own worth instead of the worth of Christ is unworthy of anyone's attention. And any man who attributes to another man such worth, if that man is not the perfect God-man Jesus Christ, He is also unworthy of anyone's attention. Men who measure themselves or others with, against other men as the standard of measure are engaging in what Paul calls foolishness. 
I should point out here that Paul does encourage others to imitate him, to imitate him, to imitate Paul. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says to the same audience that he's writing to in this letter, he says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. But it's important to understand what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he reveals what he means by that statement. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. He's saying, follow me to the extent and in the way that I follow Christ. And in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, he leaves no doubt of his intent. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul is simply holding every believer to the same standard of measure to which he holds himself. And that standard is Jesus. In verses 13 through 16, Paul explains what makes boasting legitimate or illegitimate. The words that show up repeatedly in these four verses tell us a whole lot about the point that he's making. Words like measure, sphere, or realm. And then a grouping of words beyond, extend, reach, and as far as. Listen to the repetition of these ideas as I read those four verses again. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the Gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the Gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. The self-proclaimed apostles who had crept in among the saints at Corinth were taking credit for work that they had not done. They were declaring themselves to be the God-appointed leaders of that Christian community and at the same time, they were, they were refusing to acknowledge the long and hard and faithful work on Christ's behalf that had already been done by Paul and Silas and Timothy and Titus. And some of the saints in Corinth were, were all too ready to let such men get away with this pretense, this charade. For the sake of, of these dear saints whom Paul dearly loved, uh, he refused to leave this groundless self-commendation unchallenged. He exposed it for what it was in order to set the stage for the central exhortation of this passage that we'll, that we'll get to in verses 17 and 18. Now, it might, it might appear as if Paul is, is patting himself on the back here, uh, defending his own ministry uh, and his own accomplishments, but that's exactly what Paul is not doing. That's what they were doing, but it's not what Paul is doing. 
Paul's defense against his accusers is all about what God has done through men of his own choosing, not what men have done on their own merits or to their own credit. That's a very important distinction. Back in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, for if I preach the Gospel, I have no, nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. Paul's apostolic ministry had, had been assigned to him directly by the resurrected Christ when he was on, on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus to find Christians to arrest. Jesus blinded him to make him see. And Jesus gave him this assignment. If you want to read that, the miraculous backstory of Paul's transforming encounter of Christ, just read chapters 9 and 22 and 26 of the book of Acts. Jesus did not ask Paul if he wanted to take on this daunting work that had cost him everything that he once held dear. Jesus called him out and appointed him to this task. He said, you're my man. And Jesus brought him to faith. God alone equipped and enabled Paul for this task. Uh, I personally believe that, that Paul's, Paul's, own, Paul's own testimony, his transformation is actually the stripped down version of all of our testimonies. When you get right down to it, we were just all rebels and enemies of God and God just stopped us in our tracks and pulled us out of the darkness and gave us life. That's it. It's His doing. Paul never had any more to do with the great work of spreading the Gospel and Kingdom of Christ throughout the Roman Empire than clay has to do with the work of a potter. And he never wavered in his awareness of that fact. Neither should you or I. It's a very, very constructive exercise for us to ponder this simple reality very often. In fact, to pray it back to God in agreement with Him. If we don't go through that accounting process continually, it, it is far too easy for us to begin to congratulate and commend ourselves instead of the real source of our usefulness. And this has been going on as long as God has been dealing with human beings. You go back and read like Deuteronomy 8. God says, beware lest you forget. It is I who am giving you the power to make wealth. So many train-wrecked ministries, so much needless conflict in the church would be avoided through the diligent habit of this humble acknowledgement before God. When Paul says here that he and his co-workers will not boast beyond their measure, but will boast only within the measure of the sphere or the realm that God has apportioned to them, those are his words, he's doing exactly the opposite of what the usurpers in Corinth were doing. What marks out all legitimate boasting is that it has God as its only object. Our ministry is commendable 
when it is the ministry appointed to us by God and enabled in us by God. Only then is our work on Christ's behalf commendable. Paul had not gone one single step beyond that which God had assigned to him. Not even geographically. And and he draws that point here. Uh, At the time he wrote this final letter to the Corinthians, that city, Corinth, marked the westernmost reach of of his ministry. God had given birth to the church at Corinth through Paul's faithful work in their midst. In that year and a half that he lived in Corinth, Um, during his second missionary journey. The Apostle Paul had been the first to bring the Gospel of Jesus to that region known as Achaia. It was perfectly fitting for him and his co-workers to rejoice in the work that God had accomplished through them in that place. And it was perfectly fitting for Paul to hold these saints accountable to the apostolic authority given to him by Jesus. The earnest hope that Paul expresses in verses 15 and 16 here is that God will now extend the reach of His ministry beyond Corinth, and I should point that way if you're looking at a map, beyond Corinth to the more remote points in the Roman Empire. His earnest hope was that God would use the, he says, that God would use the faith of the Corinthian saints to make that extension of His ministry happen. Later in his ministry, in his letter to the saints in Rome, specifically in Romans chapter 15, Paul declares his hope of taking the Gospel of Jesus as far as Spain. By uh, that point, God had established a believing community in the city of Rome. Paul had never been there. Uh, God would indeed bring Paul to Rome, but not in the way that he had envisioned, right? Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem after gathering this contribution that that he's talked about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for the poor and and persecuted Jerusalem saints. Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem and then he would be brought to the city of Rome to stand before Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. But he would be brought in chains. Paul saw every bit of this as as entirely in the hands of God. He never treated any part of his work as if it had been owed to him by man or by God. Uh, He had no interest in or aspiration to accomplish more than had been appointed to him by his Savior and Master. He was just the clay in the hands of the all-sovereign potter. And that's the way Paul wanted it. And that's the way we should want it. Of course, he also steadfastly refused to claim or accept credit for any work that God had done through somebody else. A number of years ago, a man that I personally knew who had by all accounts ministered faithfully as a senior pastor for decades, had to walk away from that ministry in shame because he had been caught plagiarizing other people's sermons. Not just taking a sentence here or there and not giving credit for it. That would have been bad enough. He preached entire sermons written by other people. 
And he didn't bother to mention that, that the content didn't come from himself. He justified that practice on the grounds that, his, that the demands of his pastoral ministries in the body had become so great that he just didn't have time to write sermons. In the internet age, when other people's sermons are so readily accessible, really good sermons, this has been, become all too common a practice. It is a gross violation of the principle that Paul sets before us here. We do not get to claim or accept or even give the appearance that we are accepting credit for what God has done through somebody else. But if we're truly looking to God alone to define the realm and the reach of our ministries, that means we also do not get to demand of other Christians the work that God has assigned to us. And this is an area where I see a lot of, I see a lot of trouble sometimes in the body of Christ. I lost count a long time ago of the number of times that I've seen one Christian make other Christians feel guilty for not doing the same work that they were doing. The clear implication of such an approach is, why aren't you doing what I'm doing to minister to the poor, or to the homeless, or to Muslims, or to Hindus, to minister overseas, to care for the widows in the church? Why aren't you assigning the same priority to the work I'm doing that I do. Do you think it's unimportant work? Even when such words are not actually spoken, I've seen many cases in which that intent is unmistakable. And that, beloved, is overreaching. You and I do not get to determine for someone else what their work of ministry must be. That is for God alone to determine. I'm not saying there's never a time to, to elbow a Christian who's just sitting on the bench doing nothing. What I'm saying is we don't get to tell one another what the focus of that other person's ministry should be. Another manifestation of this kind of man-centered assessment of men is, is a kind of arrogant territoriality that often rears its ugly head at the, at the local church level. It goes something like this. We do church so well here at CBC that I can't imagine why people aren't leaving other churches in droves to come here and worship and minister together with us. What's wrong with them? If we build ourselves up at the expense of other local communities of real Christians, we are violating godly love for the bride of Christ. And the one, the one we're actually discrediting, guys, is the perfect shepherd of the sheep. How quick we are to find faults with other churches and other ministries. We say, sure, that, that huge church over there has lots of impressive programs, but how can they possibly care for one another really well when there's so many people there? It's way too easy in a great big church for people to just blend in and sit in a pew and have nothing expected of them. Does any of that sound familiar? 
Have you ever heard or thought or said something like that without actually knowing what's going on at that church? How many times have you heard the word parachurch spoken as if it was a four-letter word? The definition of parachurch is any organization that does a work of Christian ministry outside the confines of a local church or denomination. Parachurch includes campus ministries like Crew and Navigators and ISI. It includes many faithful missions organizations. It includes crisis pregnancy centers. It includes Christian book publishers. And until first-generation churches had been planted and elders appointed in those churches, it also included the work of men like Paul and Peter. God has raised up all kinds of instruments for advancing the Gospel and the Kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. We should not demean or in any way minimize His work through any of those instruments. We should rejoice in all of them. We should pray for them. We should be alongside them. And they should be alongside us and all the local churches. Working together for the advancement of the, of the Gospel. We should look for opportunities to stand together. Will we find imperfections and gaps in such ministries? Absolutely. Just like they'll find imperfections and gaps in our ministries. Now don't get me wrong, only the local church can fulfill the role of the local church. And the local church is the power center of, of the advancement of the Gospel on earth. But God has called all believers to be one, to work as one. By the grace of God, uh, CBC, Community Bible Chapel, has come to have a very strong connection with the International Students Ministry at University of Texas at Dallas. Many people from our church are, are directly involved in that excellent work. Some hosting the group meetings, the home group meetings. Some attending and helping out with those meetings. Some, many, providing meals for those meetings. Others faithfully cleaning up after each of those meetings. Several in our body have lovingly built relationships with individual students who have attended the ISI home groups. And, and a good number of those international students have attended services here or at other churches in the area. Some have come to our young adults ministries. There are other ministries like that. There's a, there's a very mightily used ministry in the Vickery Meadows area, a heavily immigrant population of, of apartment residents. Uh, and there are a few people in our body. Sharon's been involved in that for years. There are others in our body that are helping out with that. These are good works that God is doing. And it's good for us to, to find out how we can plug in and how we can support and how we can be alongside. I, there are many others. I could talk about the ministry Al was part of for, for a long time. There, there are many others. Um, these are the kinds of things that need to be done intentionally. Uh, thoughtfully, lovingly, and prayerfully. We're in this together. Uh, it's also worth pondering 
how Paul's example of not boasting beyond the measure of the sphere appointed to him by God applies when someone leaves another church in our area and starts coming to CBC. Do we ever bother to ask such people what prompted them to leave the church that they used to be a part of? In some cases, their reasons will be compelling. One dear sister who checked out CBC for the first time last week mentioned in her, when she introduced herself that the church she had been part of has decided that the deity of Christ is not something worth arguing about. I hate, I'm sorry I hate to say it, but that church should be empty until somebody changes their tune in leadership. But there may be some who come into our midst who left another church for reasons that we should not endorse. Maybe instead of encouraging them to stay here, we should encourage them to reevaluate what prompted them to leave that other community of saints. That doesn't happen very much down here in the buckle of the Bible Belt where there's a church on every corner. In his outstanding book, The Prodigal Church by Jared Wilson, I, and I highly, highly, highly recommend that you read that book. Uh, he, points, he talks about one rapidly growing church that operated for many years under the assumption that nearly 50% of their congregation had been unchurched before they started going there. When they finally took a survey of their congregation to find out what the number actually was, it turned out it wasn't 50% that had been unchurched, it was 3%. And then they, they realized they had been building a megachurch by siphoning people away from other smaller churches. Because they had all these fabulous programs. And that wasn't what they meant to do. All right. I said that the real bottom line for this passage is in verses 17 and 18. And that bottom line is that the one and only legitimate boast of every child of God is this. He who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Paul comes back here to the very same truth he has presented over and over and over in 1 and 2 Corinthians. This very simple, crystal clear admonition pervades all of Paul's letters just as, as it pervades all of God's Word in both Testaments. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 says, Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The only one worthy of our boasting or of anyone else's is God. And the corollary to that is that the only commendation, the only ascribing of worth given to men that means anything at all is the commendation that comes from God. Paul applies that truth to every facet of the Christian life from beginning to end, from how we were made alive in the first place 
1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, he says, For by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written in Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For everything from our coming to life, being made alive in Christ, to how we conduct our lives, to how we finish our lives. All of it. In all of it, we boast only in the Lord. We live in a world that prizes self-commendation and self-exaltation. A world that considers genuine humility to be a failure, not a virtue. Just a few days ago, I was looking through comments that followed an online article. Political article, not a Christian article. But one of, the common, one of the comments was written by a Christian, and that Christian said that Jesus is the greatest servant of all. And that's what should draw our attention. And, and right after that was a response comment that was very simple. It said, why would anybody choose to be a servant? For us, that's actually a very reasonable question, isn't it? And the only right and reasonable answer is because the one that we serve is the greatest servant of all. He set aside His rightful glory. He took on our humanity to serve and to save the miserable likes of you and me. His undeserved humiliation and death in our place brought about our undeserved blessing and life. Eternal life. Abundant life of unhindered relationship and fellowship with the living God together with all of His undeserving redeemed. The only exaltation that we seek is His exaltation. The only worth that we recognize is His worth. The only glory that we seek is His glory. The only praise that we declare is His praise. We don't arrive at that way of life through some kind of stoic self-abasement or faked humility. We come to it simply by reckoning with reality as God has revealed it. We come to it because God has opened our eyes to see Him as He truly is and to see ourselves as we truly are. One of the most freeing and empowering things that you will ever know is that your only worth is found in your union with the One who holds all worth. Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, you hear me say this one all the time. Paul said, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That marvelous truth is glorious liberation from the greatest enslavement that exists, and that is the enslavement to a lie that exalts man when the only one worthy of exaltation is God. We have nothing to offer God except what we have received from Him in the first place. I'll wrap up here in just a minute, but I want to share a couple of passages with you. After King David had gathered the very generous contribution from 
all the people of Israel for the construction of the temple, here's what he said in 1 Chronicles 29. He said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and You exalt Yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from You, and You rule over all. And in Your hand is power and might, and it lies in Your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank You and we praise Your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer as generously as this. For all things come from You. And from Your hand we have given to You. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build You a house for Your holy name is from Your hand. And all is Yours. Paul says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And this is where he says, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And then in Ephesians 2, verses 8-10, through For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Apart from Jesus, we are the weak. We are the foolish. We are the shameful and the shamed. We are the despised. We are the things that are not. In Christ, we have been made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We've been made a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who delivered us, called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. There you have it. There you have it. That is the sum total of our worth right there. And His name is Jesus. Heavenly Father, together with the saints and angels in Revelation chapter 5, we declare worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In His incomparable name, we pray. Amen.